Hey guys, I wanted to invite you to an event I'm going to be hosting at my home in Waco, Texas, June 16th through the 17th. This gathering is going to revolve around the Enneagram. You guys have heard me talk about the Enneagram, and I cannot say enough good things about this self-discovery tool uh, spiritually, um, in life, in business, in relationships. This thing has really unpacked so much beauty, uh, so much awareness for me, uh, and I want to share this gift with you. We are bringing in Chris Hewerts. You guys have heard his wife, Felina, on the podcast. Chris has been on the podcast. They're from the Gravity Center in Omaha, Nebraska. And Chris is one of the foremost leading experts in the United States around the conversation of the Enneagram. This is going to be a time of self-discovery, uh, a time of beauty. I also want it to be a time of rest uh, so we can learn how to be. We can learn who we are at the soul level so we can go out and do our good and necessary work. It's going to be a blast. It's going to be super chill, super laid back. We've got a few spots left and we would love to see you there. Uh, you can go to ashtongustafson.com slash Enneagram, E-N-N-E-A-G-R-A-M, and uh, find out more information. Would love to see you there, and uh, yeah, won't be the same without you. Mike Morell is the communications director for the integral theology think tank Presence International, co-founder of the Buzz Seminar, and a founding organizer of the Wild Goose Festival. Mike curates contemplative and community experiences via relational yoga, the Mankind Project, and authentic North Carolina, taking joy in holding space for the extraordinary transformation that can take place at the intersection of anticipation, imagination, and radical acceptance. Mike is also an avid writer, publishing consultant, author coach, futurist, and curator of the book reviewing community, thespeakeasy.info. He currently lives with his wife and two daughters in North Carolina. Hi, I'm Ashton Gustafson, and welcome to Let the Music Play. If God is relational and God is relationship itself, then my relationships matter. My relationships with, you know, the people in my life, my life, family, friends, enemies, my relationship with my own body, with uh, the world around me, like everything matters. And that participating in having the most impeccable relationships I can conscientiously is a sacred endeavor. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Let the Music Play podcast. This is where we chat about what it looks like, what it feels like, and what it means to make music with our lives, our relationships, and our career. Uh, if you guys recall, uh, sometime last year we had Father Richard Rohr on the show, uh, and then last September or October of 2016, uh, he and an individual named Mike Morell authored a book called The Divine Dance. Um, this book... Uh, brought incredibly beautiful and wonderful insight into the Trinity, what it means uh, for us, what it means for us as humanity, what it means for us as people in the world. Um, and so long story short, uh, a few emails later, uh, Mike has decided to come on the show with us, and I'm super excited to have him here. He's the co-author of the book, The Divine Dance. He has a whole lot of other projects going on. We'll chat about them. Uh, but that being said, Mike, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you, Ashton. I'm really glad to be here. Well, man, um, let me just say from afar, I really have admired your body of work. Um, just seems like you've got um, just a beautiful spirit to what you're doing. You're putting a lot of good things out there. You're curating uh, very good and necessary space. 
Uh, so from, from half a country away, kudos on that work. When you introduce people to you and the work that you're putting into the world, where do you begin? Mm. Well, well, first of all, thank you, Ashton. I, I really appreciate that. It's uh, It's been quite a fun journey, I think, ever since undergrad days when I realized I wasn't cut out for normal jobs. I, I started making up my own, and uh, <laughs> it's led me to some really interesting places. Yes. Uh, yeah, you know, how I introduce myself, um, oftentimes just that I like creating transformative spaces, which has a lot less to do with me and a lot more about creating a hospitable environment for mm -hmm. people to be present to themselves and to each other. Uh, I, I love that. I, I, in, in your bio, you have something here that I just wanted to read, that, that you curate contempla contemplative community experience uh, where you can take joy in holding space for extraordinary transformation that can take place at the intersection of anticipation, imagination, and radical acceptance. Let's go. I mean, I'm, I'm all in. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, you know, for the last five years, I've, I've gotten to do some really awesome uh, personal development work, both as a participant and as a facilitator, with two great organizations, uh, one of them being the Mankind Project, hmm. which is an international men's movement that does work in healthy masculinity, you know, pro-feminist, pro grounded, healthy masculinity through modern-day rites of passage and ongoing support in men's groups. Wow. where we learn the tools to dive into our emotions and our lives, our, our stories, our pain, our joy, and can hold you know everything from, from happiness to anger really cleanly and directly, developing ourselves as men, becoming you know better brothers to each other and showing up you know more fully to the women and uh, non-binary folks in our lives. And uh, the other group is a group called um, Authentic Relating. Uh, and authentic relating, uh, they create these authentic games nights that happen all over the world, mm -hmm. as well as these personal transformation weekends uh, that take on a variety of manifestations. And in authentic games, we play literal games with our, our presence. Like, are we fully present to ourselves? Can we sense another person's presence, even if our eyes are closed? And what does it look like to have a genuine connection with someone else beyond small talk? Wow. So, uh, I mean, that sounds like a whole nother conversation we may need to get into one day. Um, but, uh, <laughs> for sure. well, how, and how it ties to the Trinity, how it ties to the Trinity, I'll, I'll segue it for you. Yeah. Is that, <laughs> you know, if we're created not just in the Imago Dei and the image of God, but perhaps the, the Imago Trey, if there's something about, oh, yeah. Uh, Threeness or God as community that is reflected in everything from the structure of the atom to how we exist uh, in, instinctually as tribal beings, then, you know, Father Richard and I's thought, especially when we were doing the appendix with the spiritual exercises at the back, is that, yes, we want to include some tried and true classic contemplative Christian practices— but if Trinity means anything for our day-to-day -day lived experience, then we also want to see what does it mean to explore a genuinely participatory group spirituality. Hmm. And that's where, where some of this additional training that I've gotten to experience came in handy of, of revisioning this in ways that we're practicing the presence of each other. Wow. Amazing. That's absolutely amazing. So, um, before we get into this, I, I kind of wanted to um, segue into 
maybe how you got connected uh, with Father Rohr. It it seems like um, he is like the village elder for so many of us. Um, (laughs) And and, um, it's like immediately when you come across someone that has also come across his teachings and and their lives have been changed by it, there's this immediate bond. Uh, I haven't seen someone like this living in a long time. How did you Mm. uh, initially get connected uh, with Father Rohr? Absolutely. Well, so to you know, comment on what you're saying first about the village elder energy. I think that's something that I'm I'm witnessing these days that is kind of amazing. Like mm-hmm. on the one hand, we're discovering in our culture the wisdom and the authority of voices that historically haven't had much voice in our culture. Mm-hmm. So you know, women, people of color, LGBT folks. I you know I've been blogging on a series started last month for Black History Month, but continuing on of saying, you know, one of my personal spiritual survival strategies right now in a post-Trump world is to listen to voices on the margins because, you know, my my white male self is freaking out about Trump and they're kind of like, yeah, welcome to our reality. We mm-hmm. often, you know, have these experiences. But on the other hand, I think there is a redemption of the the patriarch, that there, there is a way of seeing this classically white male person who lives beautifully, who wields power well. And I think we see that in various manifestations in Pope Francis, mm-hmm. in Bernie Sanders, um, and in Father Richard, that these are, are wise elders who, you know, so many other men of their generation have, you know, held power in a way that makes us distrustful of the very idea of power and the very idea of, you know, certainly white men holding it. But, you know, one of the first books that I read of Father Richard's years ago is now, I believe, called From Wild Man to Wise Man. Mm -hmm. And it's specifically a book he does about male spirituality and says, you know, what we're we're called to do is not to abdicate power, not to deny it, but to to hold it well. And I think that he models that so beautifully, and that's why a lot of us are, are drawn to him. Um, I got to connect with him initially uh, over a decade ago. I worked with Spencer Burke uh, from the late lamented website, theooze.com. <laughs> I don't know. Do you remember the ooze? I don't. I don't. Okay. Well, so long before there was a... Um, emergent church conversation okay. or movements, there was this postmodern Christianity uh, milieu where there were just people that were asking questions, talking, you know, before social media, before blogs mm-hmm. were really a thing. In the late 90s, Spencer started The Ooze, and around the turn of the century, I became involved with the website as an editor. And uh, Spencer has now gone on to, he's the curator of The Hatchery out in L.A., okay. this alternative seminary out in L.A., but But Spencer, I actually credit with bringing a lot of us evangelicals and post-evangelicals to Father Richard, because Spencer was a Thomas Merton enthusiast. He was into contemplative spirituality before it was cool. And, um, you know, Spencer would curate these gatherings every couple of years called Solarize, a learning party. Mm -hmm. And it was at uh, a Solarize that I was working with, Wow, 10 years ago this fall in the Bahamas, you know, we were really suffering for Jesus. Um, that we had these amazing voices we got to bring together, including uh, Rita Brock, who wrote this amazing church history, uh, co wrote this amazing church history volume called Saving Paradise. We had Michael Dowd from Thank God for Evolution, my friend Frank Viola, um, N.T. Wright, Brendan Manning, and Father Richard. 
Well, so it was quite the, uh, the who's quite the who. yes. Yeah. It was really cool. And, um, yeah, I got to connect with him initially there. You know, he was very kind and we had some really, you know, meaningful conversations afterward. Some of us who helped facilitate solar eyes had uh, an extra day and a half with him where he, uh, introduced us to the Enneagram and, mm-hmm. and typed us all. <laughs> it was just mm-hmm. a, a great time. So, you know, fast forward a few years, I was involved in helping start the Wild Goose Festival. Yeah. Uh, justice Arts and Spirituality Festival that draws people from all over the country, but happens in North Carolina. And he was uh, really involved in the first couple of years of that before he went into semi-retirement from traveling elsewhere. And so, you know, we we got to connect through those spaces. And I work in publishing. My good friend Don Milam um, with Whitaker House wanted really wanted to publish Richard. He, you know, Don was really drawn to some of his work that that touched him at a meaningful time in his life and wanted to work on something. And you know, I was aware of this really brilliant uh, conference material that was at that time like a decade old. And it was called, the one conference was called The Divine Dance. The other one was called The Shape of God. And I thought that those ought to be translated into written form. Mm-hmm. And so I um, approached Richard about this. And to my delight, he was open to exploring the possibility. And the rest is history. Wow, beautiful. Um, that's amazing. Now, when is the Wild Goose Festival this summer? The Wild Goose Festival this summer is, I will tell you, July 13th through 16th. Okay, right on. And if people have questions about that or like, what are those guys talking about? They can just Google Wild Goose Festival and you'll find it. Yeah, you can go to wildgoosefestival.org. And in fact, um, I'm curating something starting the morning of the 13th. The festival officially kicks off late afternoon on, on the 13th. But on the morning of the 13th, I'll be curating something called Wisdom Camp, where we will be bringing in contemplative voices from Christianity and from some other streams of indigenous wisdom and other faith traditions. And we're going to be exploring the collective trauma that a lot of us are experiencing, maybe especially since the Trump election, but, you know, if we're honest, things that have been going on in our collective soul for um, many, many years. And we're going to look at the very specific wisdom interventions that can make a difference for us individually, systemically, and culturally. So it's going to be a really good time. Wow. Beautiful. Uh, I hope people go and check that out. Um, So let's get into the divine dance uh, and really this conversation about Trinity, which is like, it's a conversation about the shape of God, which is, um, the crazy thing is, this isn't a new idea, but it's totally being brought back to life, I think, uh, by you guys, um, as if it's a new idea. Does that make sense? Um, Yeah. So like, for for people that may not come from our faith tradition or are just kind of like what what are these two talking about tell me like yeah. sh- tell me how we got here with the conversation of trinity i know it was like 4th century mm-hmm. cappadocia mm-hmm. you take it from there yeah, yeah absolutely so yeah, what's a, what's a trinity doing in the middle of a good monotheistic faith like Christianity? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's the question. You know, we have these, we tend to have these neat little categories like monotheism, where there's only one God, or polytheism, where there's this whole pantheon of deities. And then, you know, in Christianity, we have this uh, 
this thing where early followers of Jesus um, recognized the God of Israel as the father of Jesus, but they also saw something, you know, divine about Jesus himself, and that there was this outpoured and indwelling spirit of God that animated the whole thing. And so scripture never names the Trinitarian dynamic explicitly, but it is seen in its doxology. Mm -hmm. It's sort of worshipful statements of things that happen in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Like that language is showing up in scripture. But of course, you know, very little in scripture is summarized in neat little boxes that satisfy our our modern sensitivities. But you're right. In fourth century uh, Turkey, in central Anatolia, the Cappadocian region, there was this fertile community of mystical theologians, practitioners, and leaders that were known as the Cappadocian Fathers. There was Basil the Great, his little brothery, little brothery, little brother Gregory of Nyssa, and their close friend Gregory of uh, Nazarenus. And then there was also this Cappadocian mother, uh, Macrina the Younger. And these teachers, they witnessed the dynamism of Trinity in their lives and in the testimony of our sacred writings. And they borrowed the term, this term from arts and culture to describe this dynamic movement. Mm-hmm. It was perichoresis. Mm-hmm. And the word perichoresis literally means circle dance. It's the same root word, the perichoresis, that we get our word choreography from. So this idea of the dancing God, as you know, Father Richard says in the pages of the Divine Dance, if, if I was just making this up, you would just say, yeah, you're just a West Coast New Ager. But <laughs> right. you know, here it is right in the heart of our tradition that Trinity is this perichoretic movement, this yeah. dance, that, that the oneness of God, uh, it's very well within monotheism, but the oneness of God is expressed in that relationship. It's a unity of relationality yeah. as opposed to a flat monad. Right. And so basically what you guys are really doing, which again, I have to repeat this, this isn't new, um, but it sure seems like we forgot it for about 1500 years. Um, And uh, you're basically bringing this reality that um, the perichoresis, the divine dance, that that God is more a verb than a noun, Mm -hmm. Um, which... I, throughout the book, I mean, I, when I was going through my notes last night, I mean, I practically underlined every inch of this book. And this is oh co- this is constantly brought back into the conversation that, you know, a lot of times people think Zeus and God are synonymous. Th- th- this type of, you know, being entity, um, mm-hmm. casting down thunderbolts and so forth. But you really bring this into, no, this is this is community. This is union. This is one. This is three operating as one. This is way more a verb than it is a noun. Absolutely. You know, some of my theologian friends like to refer to the event of God, Mm. that God is something that happens to us, that, Mm. you know, the biblical God is not simply the the God of the philosophers as some abstract static concept, but God is dynamism itself. And, it makes sense in um, a world of where we have increasing understanding of quantum physics and that, you know, matter is not so much about substance, but about the relationship between different constitutive elements, yeah. that we, we see this relational verbing God uh, at the heart of all existence. Right. So, of course, uh, if, if the creator resembles Trinity, of course, it's going to resemble the same thing in the atom. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's going to be reflected from the micro all the way up to the macro, that we live in a relational universe where God is as close to us as our breath. Mm-hmm. And I think for many years, you know, there was sort of a functional deism within Christianity, influenced by, you know, wrestling with some very real questions brought on by the Enlightenment of, well, man, we used to think that that God was just our catch-all answer for a universe we didn't understand. And, you know, for many years, of course, we didn't understand very much. And now we believe we're coming to more and more insights. And it's led to this unfortunate situation where fundamentalist Christians feel very afraid and they're they're defending a God of the gaps. Well, you know, God still is in control, quote unquote, of those things that we don't understand. But when that, you know, area of the postage stamp becomes smaller and smaller mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. we're learning more and more insights thanks to our our god-given science uh that that realm you know to say god is up in his heaven is uh and you know winding up things down on earth becomes more and more unbelievable mm-hmm. it's not something we can really resonate with anymore as a culture and so but, but the great news is we don't have to that mm-hmm. actually a, a biblical worldview and a historically rooted uh, Christian worldview is a God who is all in all. We don't have to wait for the gaps because, you know, God permeates everything. Yeah. And that mystery is part of the deal, right? Um, yeah. I mean, I think that's a huge part of it is, is um, stepping out of certitude and having to have all your line, you know, all of your dots perfectly connected. I think part of the element of recovering the idea of Trinity is that there's, there's, there's a lot of mystery here. Um, and it's, it's part of the human experience itself. Indeed. And you know, why this matters, you know, beyond metaphysical speculation is that if God is relational and God is relationship itself, then my relationships matter. My relationships with, you know, the people in my life, my life, family, friends, enemies, my relationship with my own body, mm-hmm. with uh, the world around me, like everything matters. And that participating in having the most impeccable relationships I can conscientiously is a sacred endeavor. Yeah, absolutely. So as we get into the book, you guys have kind of like three major parts. Um, the first one being this idea of this Trinitarian revolution, which again, um, we're kind of going back to some of these early mystic fathers that had uh, these wonderful insights. You want to talk through kind of this revolution, if you will, uh, and exactly what you guys were trying to point at at that part of the book? Sure, absolutely. And I feel like we've already touched on some of it. Yeah. But basically, you know, the, the idea being that we have these images of God that are prevalent in our culture. Uh, we've already talked about one of them, the sort of deistic, aloof, you know, image of God. Another one would be the uh, the Zeus image of God, mm-hmm. this, this all-powerful, you know, guns a-blazing God who holds the sinners in his hands over, uh, you know, over the fires of hell. And this was an image of God that, for whatever reason, seemed to especially resonate with a lot of early American settlers in the Puritan movement and has continued to have a strong impact in various forms of Calvinism and fundamentalism in the United States. So it's this very muscular God, this this smiter with a miter, as I like to right, say. Right. And it's, it's, it's the Zeusian God. And 
on the other hand, maybe in like reaction to that, we have what I would call the Seussian God, the Dr. Seuss God, <laughs> that is uh, this wish fulfillment device. It's, it's your buddy, you know, like the, mm -hmm. the Kevin Smith movie from 1999, Dogma, where they, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the Catholic Church was trying to uh, make themselves more palatable. So they had the Catholicism Wow campaign. And within that, they had the Buddy Christ. You know, he was winking and giving you a thumbs up to say, hey, you know, it's all good. And I, I feel like we see that in everything from popular televangelists to prosperity mm -hmm. preachers that, you know, God is a wish fulfillment device that we can act upon. And and while that, you know, the Seussian God and the Zeusian God might at first seem to be very different from each other, they're both this sort of out there God who is all powerful. And the main difference is the disposition uh, that these different images uh, have. What we're finding in our culture is that neither of those images at the end of the day are very satisfying. Right. That you know, you can obviously it, it's sort of like being with an abusive partner to have that Zeusian god, uh, the sort of you know, can turn on a whim very temperamentally. And the Seussian God, well, frankly, that metaphysic doesn't really work in our lives. Like if we're always looking for the cosmic vending machine, sooner or later it runs out of candy and we get disappointed by that sort of I-it relationship with right. that kind of deity. And so the revolution that uh, the Father Richard has seen and that I've, I've been privileged to help contribute to the articulation of is that uh, the God as Trinity is God as mutuality, as vulnerability, as self-giving love, that that is actually the biblical the revelation of God in Christ is this word that shows up in Greek called kenosis, mm -hmm. or the self-emptying of divinity. And, um, you know, there are these different mystics, uh, one of them being Bonaventure, who, who sees this as the cosmic water wheel, that there's this forever turning and outpouring uh, the members of Trinity within God's self, and that this outpouring includes all of us especially when we're consciously building that into our spirituality. Hmm. And that's why I'm a wannabe contemplative with my <laughs> centering prayer practice, because yeah. centering prayer is about this inner mechanism of letting go. And it's not letting go into a nihilistic void. It's letting go into a generous universe where there is this relational self-giving God at the heart of everything. Into the flow, letting go into the flow that is Trinity. Yes, yes, letting yeah. go in, into the flow. And, you know, it's interesting you say that some of the pushback that we've gotten about the book from critics has been that we focus more on the flow than we do on the, the classical persons of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And uh, that's an interesting critique to me because mm -hmm. I feel like we, we actually do spend time on, on the Father, Son, and Spirit, but, but they are right that we spend more time and attention on the space between because we feel like that's a very neglected area of Trinitarian studies, mm -hmm. like looking at the relationships and the, the ways in which the persons, if you will, uh, treat one another. And, and that, frankly, is why I think my friend Paul Young's novel, The Shack, yeah. really hit a nerve a decade ago and is having another wave of impact through the release of the film because we're hungry for this understanding of how God relates to God's self, how God treats God's self, and therefore how God treats us. Yep. It's an absolutely revolutionary way of seeing God. Absolutely. And, and that leads perfectly into this second section of why Trinity, why now? And somewhere recently, or maybe it's been in the last year, you wrote something somewhere. And it, I'm just going to 
I'm probably going to botch it a little bit here, but it was a, <laughs> it was it was along the lines of, um, look, if we if if God is truly love, okay, then let's go back. Let let's let's let Paul take the mic for a minute, and mm-hmm. and what if we were like, um, God keeps no record of wrongs. Uh, mm-hmm. God always hopes. God always perseveres. God is not a banging symbol. Um, I think some of the effort in this second half of the book uh, was you guys saying, look, how we understand the triune God uh, is how we're going to end up navigating ourselves, navigating our moments, navigating our relationships, our careers. This is a um, this is essential to our existence to really re-anchor and know that if if it is true, and if this is what we adhere to and believe mm-hmm. in, um, it's significant to really redefine this triune God through the lens of love. Mm. Yes, absolutely. And <laughs> you're very kind uh, thinking about that particular rewriting. What it was was First uh, Corinthians 13, taken from you right. know the famous love chapter that's, that's right. read in so many weddings. Yeah. And uh, if we take seriously God as love. Uh, yeah, it has a different lens. I'll, I'll go ahead and read it real Please. quick. It's kind of short. It's worth, I think, if you're here listening, uh, reflecting on for a moment. So God is patient. God is kind. God does not envy. God does not boast. God is not proud. God is not rude. God is not self-seeking. God is not easily angered. God keeps no record of wrongs. God does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. God always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. God never fails. Hmm. That's it. (laughs) It's like, there we go. There you go. What else is there to say? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. I know. I mean, it's kind of like, I hate even adding words to it. That's it. And when, when we, when we recenter ourselves in that reality, um, mm-hmm. the own, like, how else can you lead your life without more peace and more patience and more kindness and more gentleness and more self-control, more forgiveness when that's how you define reality itself? Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. yeah. Yeah. When I was, um, yeah, when I grew up in, in a more fundamentalist context, my God was angry and, uh, and seemingly afraid too, like, mm. you know, needed more people to believe in him and worship him in order to, you know, keep things going. I mean, that wasn't officially a part of the theology, but mm. it implicitly, I think, fueled this sort of anxiety toward groupthink and as many conversions as possible. And I think we become what we behold. So yeah. if our God is, is in fact love, which is <laughs> right there in, in the same Bible that I liked to quote as a kid in, in the traditions I grew up in, then, um, you know, God is love. If we really let that wash over us, I think we end up coming to an idea of God a lot like Trinity, and that ends up impacting our lives in more beautiful and meaningful ways. And you say, what, what we behold, we become. Riff on that for a second. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that developmental psychology is validating this. And, you know, you even see it, echoes of it in the Apostle Paul that, you know, the very things that I I wish I do not do, I do. 
well, why is that? You know, his his riff on the law. Well, the law is like the equivalent of saying, don't look at this elephant. <laughs> if you're telling me not to look at an elephant and you've got a picture of an elephant, well, I'm going to be looking at that elephant. Yeah. My behavior is naturally going to be drawn towards what is getting my attention. And so, you know, I think it is necessary to take a look at our shadow sides, mm. the things that about ourselves that we hide and deny and repress, to take a look at our egos. It, we do have to roll up our sleeves and spend some time there. But, um, you know, I'm reminded of the story of the, the Federal Reserve Bank that spots counterfeit currency. They spend some time looking at different counterfeits of currency, but they spend more time looking at and knowing what real currency looks like. They spend more time with the authentic, which enables their discernment to be able to detect what isn't real. And I think that, you know, that, that element of biblical spirituality of we're, we're now with an unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord and that we're moving from glory to glory. Whatever is true and good and beautiful, reflect on these things. I think that this is especially a timely word for those of us who are rightly being called to activism in this season, who are being called to you know, address injustice head on. We have to be rooted in a spirituality of the beauty and joy of God. I think it's the only thing that can give us the fuel we need, the energy we need to face so much ugliness on a daily basis. Yeah, yeah. I would totally agree with you on that. Um, and then as you enter into kind of this this last bit of the book um, where you kind of get into the spirit of things, I love at the very end, uh, one of the segments is called Everything is Now Holy. Um and and there you guys talk about in the divine in the divine economy, everything is usable. And I know Father Richard often says transcend and include, um, mm-hmm. and and different things like that. <clears throat> what were you guys getting at in this idea that um, everything belongs? It's all usable. It's all part of it. Um, <laughs> what were you going at yes. there? Absolutely. Well, you know, in binary thinking, in dualistic thinking, there are winners and losers. Right, exactly. Someone is gaining power over another, and that is how our dualistic relationships work. That's how our dualistic politics work. It's a zero-sum game. Mm -hmm. Uh, The best we've been able to figure out, it's a little different than that, is the Hegelian dialectic. And it's still a dialectic. You still have this, you know, thesis being put out there. And then you have this antithesis going on. And at most, you might have a synthesis that is a kind of uh, a compromise that neither party wants, but, you know, maybe both can can live with. Right. And uh, and that's uh, that's the best we've got in a, a dualistic world. But in Trinitarian spirituality, we have the possibility of what's technically called a ternary metaphysic, something mm. that involves three elements. Mm. And so we delve very briefly into the book what uh, Cynthia Bourgeau gives a lot of time yeah. to in her book called The Holy Trinity and the Law of Three. And there's this notion that there aren't just losers and, and winners, that if we have a transformed understanding we see, you know, one position coming forth in, in the language of the law of three, it would be wholly affirming. And another position coming forth that would be considered wholly denying. And, and affirming and denying here don't necessarily mean good and bad. Right. Uh, you know, you could you could say that, uh, you know, some, someone is affirming something that might on the surface be pretty awful, in fact. And denying is like a prophetic response to that. 
But if you're only locked in the someone's putting something out and then the prophetic response, then, you know, once again, you have this binary going on. But the law of three asks the question, what if we live not in a binary universe, but a ternary universe? If threeness captures the essence of the cosmos more than twoness, mm. it means that we can hold this first force or second force perspective with earnestness while fully awaiting some third force to arrive yeah. and surprise us out of all of our neat little boxes. Yeah. And this this wouldn't be simply the synthesis of, you know, a, a primary position and an opposition position, but it genuinely novel arrival onto the scene, a third force that validates actually both of the other two perspectives or validates something within both of those that ends up creating this novelty, this whole new arising. Yeah. And, um, I think maybe a lot of people have referred to this as like third way thinking, third way possibilities, um, Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. when you, when you leave that binary dualistic, uh, uh, head-on challenge between two and you enter into this third way um mm-hmm. it, it ends i mean i, I want to say better i think better better a more beautiful a more peaceful a more uh unified uh something rather than uh, a more mm-hmm. uniform something is that i think you guys talk about unity yes. and uniformity sometimes Absolutely. And and the way that you're using third way is the best way to use third way. I feel like, unfortunately, sometimes that term gets co-opted to mean, um, mean exactly the Hegelian dialectic application mm-hmm. of, mm-hmm. well, you know, there are churches out there that are pro-LGBT and there are churches out there who are anti. We're going to be third way, which means we're not going to talk about it. And we're really going to hope that people can all hang out with us while we don't talk about mm-hmm. this thing. That's the elephant in the room. Uh, and, and I feel like that's that's not what I want to see in a, a genuinely third force rising. But, you know, Cynthia will point out that third force isn't something that we could just sort of fill out a worksheet and figure out. Yeah. It actually comes from an upgraded operating system where we are spending time in a practice like centering prayer, where we're regularly undoing our assumptions about the world, where we're regularly undoing our assumptions about even our own position and defendedness. You know, I might think I'm right in a relationship and someone else confronts me with something and says, no, you hurt me. And my initial response is to be defensive. But if I can sit with it, there's a possibility that I might still think I'm right, but I hold it in such a way that I can also appreciate how this other person totally sees his or her perspective. And if we can both do that, mm-hmm. uh, or even if only one of us can at yeah. that moment in time yeah. and really sit with it, some third arising might happen that can lead toward a reconciliation that neither of us thought was possible. Yeah. I mean, there's the pro forma for becoming a more redemptive presence in the world. Um, yes. You know, <laughs> I mean, it is way easier said than done. Um, Absolutely. I'm still very much learning this. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm a remedial student in, yeah. in third relating, but it is, I mean, to me, if I'm not aspiring to that, then, then I don't even know what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. But if love doesn't envy, if love doesn't boast, if love doesn't keep a record of wrongs, and, and this is the image we're made in, um, then we better take some notes. Yeah, <laughs> <Awesome>. absolutely. <laughs> so um, I can't say enough good things uh, about the book. If For our listeners, if you guys um, are looking for 
a read, the type of read that you finish it and then you just go back to the first page and begin it again. Mm-hmm. Um, this mm-hmm. is that book. Uh, I, I take it it can be found anywhere books are bought and sold. It's true. It's true. Hey. Yes. And uh, so before we go, I um, wanted to chat through some questions I always ask uh, our guests that are on here. And I always ask, um, what's currently keeping you curious these days? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Any books, causes, people, ideas? What is it? Yes. So, you know, working on a book, collaborating on a book with Father Richard, where we talk about this core relationality at the heart of God and all things, uh, quite naturally has had an impact on my own development, soul, and questions. And it's deepened the line of inquiry that I've been wondering about for a long time, which is how did we humans as a species get to this point in our evolution, in our development. And I've been working with a good friend and colleague of mine, uh, Britton Bullock, on these questions, doing this sort of cross-disciplinary research with anthropology, archaeology, psychology, and then biblical studies and spirituality. And, you know, very briefly, I'll just say that you know, something that we articulate in the divine dance is that there's this fourfold alienation that seems to be at the heart of our species at this moment in time, that we feel alienated from God, ourselves, each other, and our world. And um, Britton and I, in our research, are looking at this, on the surface of it, it might sound like an unlikely uh, historical point or source of this development, but it's our transition from being hunter-gatherers, from being immediate return foragers, to being settled agrarians. Mm. Uh, you know, what we've discovered is that there was this enormous shift in our psyche as a species that, that we see as a traumatic shift, where almost immediately within a, a eye blink of geologic time, like mm-hmm. a couple thousand years, right. we lost inches off our stature, a decade plus off our lifespan, and the ways in which men related to women and people related to each other shifted and looked a lot more like these sort of patriarchal, organized warfare, socially stratified world that we have today. But that the good news is for hundreds of thousands of years, we didn't have that way of living. Mm-hmm. And we see scripture as actually illustrating this parabolically in some compelling ways with the, uh, the story in Eden, where we transition from living by the tree of life to living by the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that that models the discursive uh, reasoning that we developed in this shift, where we start labeling some things good, some things bad, right and wrong. Uh, the story of Cain and Abel as a story of two different ways of living clashing with each other. The, the farmer, the emergent agrarian represented by Cain, uh, not having an acceptable sacrifice to God, and the more nomadic, um, you know, pastoralist, Abel, having the acceptable sacrifice, and the violence and the strife that emerged between them. Uh, so we're following these threads through mm. Scripture all the way through Jesus, who in many ways is rewilding the path. He's suggesting that we dare to consider the lilies and the yeah, birds and live in a, this immediacy. Yes. Uh, that's very different than the parable of the greedy farmer who stores up his grain wow. that he tells. So, it's, so like uh, no big deal. You're just making archaeologic, social, uh, <laughs> biblical. Uh, yeah. I mean, and you're just predicting or telling us why we got here. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, no big you know, deal. 
It's, uh, <laughs> we, we are far more translating material that's already out there than, than innovating, but I, I do find it astounding that there aren't many mm-hmm. popular teachers or even Christian theologians or biblical scholars that have given this much, um, you know, much attention. Mm-hmm. If you you go on the Center for Action and Contemplation's website, Father Richard's organization, and you go to the Wanting Journal. It's a journal of non-duality that yeah. the CAC publishes. In the evolution issue, which I think is still the most recent issue out, there's an essay where Britton and I um, explore these ideas. It's called Evolving Wild, Glimpses of the Garden City. And, uh, and we're planning on launching a podcast this summer where we get to explore these questions in more depth with experts in different fields. Dude, I'm all in. Let me know so I can push that out um, to our I listeners. I mean, that sounds... I'm just sitting here going, um, yeah, I mean, when we did have to leave the cave and when we did wonder, is it going to rain? And we mm-hmm. ate we ate because it rained. I mean, when we, were, when we were truly connected to that tree of life, um, mm-hmm. a big thing shifts when we get connected to the knowledge of good and evil, which... Is just another yeah. word for a binary dualistic world. Absolutely. And, you know, it's not to over romanticize our, our hundreds of thousands of years as hunter gatherers. There were predators, there right, were, you know, right, things yeah. that cut our lives short. There was a lot of uncertainty. And I think that's why the agrarian turn became so appealing to us as a species. We're like, whoa, wait a minute. We could actually like plant stuff and just mm-hmm. sit around and wait mm-hmm. for it to come up. So much better uh, was the idea. But in fact, you know, most immediate return societies spend about four hours every other day getting their food, and they spend the rest of their time in relative leisure. It uh, It's really fascinating when you get down to it. There's wow. been a lot of, I would say, propaganda <laughs> against what life was like for a lot of folks in most of our species, you know, ancient history. Mm-hmm. So. It's all wow. very interesting, wow. and and I, I see par- some applications just being that all religion and spirituality is attempting to rebridge this fourfold alienation from mm-hmm. God, self, others, and world. It's all attempting to, and the paradox is that you know our different religious interpretations and spiritual technologies, if you will, uh, all contain the poison as well as the cure yeah. because they are a product of the very culture of alienation that they're seeking to transcend. And so, you know, it's why, while all religious paths promise, you know, love and goodness and abundant life, how often in our experience mm-hmm. does religion mm-hmm. give us the exact opposite uh, in practice where we're like, man, really, is this, is this all there is? Wow. And I think that we're, you know, going to hopefully begin to discern the tools uh, to to separate the wheat from the chaff, to really yeah. behold what is good and true and beautiful in our lineages while fearlessly letting go of what doesn't serve. Wow, that's brilliant, by the way. Uh, I mean, I'm just sitting here connecting all these dots. Like one, I mean, I'm sure the data probably shows that they were way more physically active, but they also rested a lot more. I mean, I'm just sitting here going, yeah, I bet, I bet that was true. <laughs> Yes, and and I and it's one reason why I'm very interested in you know contemporary indigenous peoples, first first nations folks, Native mm-hmm. Americans, mm-hmm. Um, you know the the very precious few tribal communities around the world that have been 
utterly bulldozed over by our civilization, yeah. <laughs> the yeah. civilization that's right. making us alienated and miserable. Right. It's like we need to listen to these wise elder voices wow. while we still can, because wow. I feel like they're an important key to our survival and thriving as a species. Man, that is so interesting. Wow, that's like, we need to revisit this. Can we revisit this this summer? Absolutely. Okay. I'll, I'll be happy to you know share the initial essays with you, and yeah. then we can have another dialogue this summer. Hopefully our, our podcast will already be up and running by then, too. Wow, that's amazing. Um, lastly, what, what advice would you give to your younger self? <laughs> um, what advice would I give my younger self? I would say, on the one hand, Good on you for dreaming big and not settling for status quo interpretations of reality or vocation. Um, I would say get more sleep. Don't be so obsessed with your various, you know, muses and uh, and sources of inspiration sometimes. Get outside more. Yeah, it's going to be all right. <laughs> Take a breath. Yes, yes, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> oh, we, we need that. Uh, we need that now more than ever. Dude, well, this was brilliant and beautiful and so insightful. Um, to our listeners, I can't encourage you guys enough. Follow Mike online, watch what he's doing, listen, read what he's doing, and of course, uh, get the Divine Dance um, that he wrote with Father Richard Rohr. It's unbelievable. I'm telling you, it's I highlighted every page and then some. <laughs> Um, well, thank, thank you, Ashley. And if we want to follow you, we can go to MikeMorell.org. I know that you also offer a bonus chapter online. You want to tell us about that? Sure, absolutely. You know, if you're if you're thinking about the Divine Dance and you're on the fence, the bonus chapter would be a great place to start. It's uh, available at MikeMorell.org forward slash bonus chapter. And it contains uh, an excerpt from the book itself. So you get the introduction and the beginning of it. It also contains something that's available nowhere else where I reflect on a profound encounter that I had several years back with God as Trinity that in many ways put me on this path of, of why this personally matters to me. So I, I give that away right there on the blog. And that's also the way you can stay in touch with me through email. I send out an occasional digest of my best posts which include my writing as well as material that I curate from other voices that I really admire. Brilliant. All right, man. Well, we are thankful and grateful for you and your work. Keep doing it. Stay curious. And uh, I look forward to uh, keeping this friendship going and talking to you down the road. Thank you, Ashton. Likewise. Okay, man. We'll talk soon. Okay. Later. Make sure you guys go and support Mike's work. You can go to mikemorell.org and uh, find everything you want about what he's doing and the work that he's putting into the world. I know you'll find it to be a great light uh, in your own journey. And as you approach this week, may you pause by the orchid, listen to the bluebirds sing, and be love. This episode today is brought to you by Holsty. You guys have heard me speak in the past about Holsty. We've had one of the co-founders of Holsty on here, Mike Radpavar, and I cannot say enough good things about what these guys put into the world. For the month of May, the word is simplicity, uh, and every month they reground us, all of us that have kind of joined this Holsty movement, in a word. Uh, the month before was compassion. This month it's simplicity. Um, some One month before it was imagination. There's all these different and beautiful things to unpack. I can't say enough good things about it. So they sponsor us. They love what we're doing here. We love what they're doing. We're very aligned with all things Holsty, and I can't say enough good things about them. Go to Holsty.com, H-O-L- 
S-T-E-E.com uh, and join the monthly subscription. I think you'll find this to be a beautiful, enlightening, uh, just great tool for your overall life, relationships, businesses, and so forth. You can use the checkout code Ashton, A-S-H-T-O-N, and you'll get a little discount there uh, if you join the monthly Holsty subscription.